All right, well, welcome back, everybody. Um, we are back at home here at Ocean View. It's good to be back in our uh, rented home. Uh, last time we were here, there were a bunch of kids running around in like shepherd costumes and angel outfits, handing out cupcakes, big Christmas tree, all that kind of stuff. It's hard to believe that that was just a few weeks ago. Um, that was really fun. But before we start, now that we're in a new year, before we start into a new series, I want to start off this new year with a week where we sort of get our bearings, where we, we lay a foundation for the rest of the year. It's sort of our version of a New Year's resolution. Now, who did a New Year's resolution this year? Raise your hand. You don't have to be shy about it. Okay, great. So I, I didn't. I, um, I have enough resolutions from when I turned 30 to like last me for a, about five more years, so I didn't want to overwhelm myself. So, um, all right, well, here's what we're going to do. Here's what I want to talk about this morning. I think that we are living in an age where um, the cultural values of self-reliance and sort of the, the, the way we construct truth are being taken to sort of a logical conclusion. I'm going to kind of describe what I mean by that as we go along. But what I think is that the, the sort of the chickens of autonomy and sort of the relativism of our culture have come home to roost in, in, in many ways. And over the course of time, we've unmoored ourselves from a dependence on God and submission to his truth. And we're, we're losing our ability in, in some big way to apply wisdom and discernment in our lives. And there, there simply isn't an anchor to hold on to anymore or a, a north star to guide us. So if you want a recent example of this, just think of the problem of fake news. Right? Anybody can have a voice on the internet, which is actually a good thing in many ways. But put a good thing like that or, or a powerful thing like that in the hands of unchecked Sinful people, and you've got the ability to cause great harm. And in this example, at least without editorial oversight over news, for example, the internet can feel more like a jungle than a garden. And jungles will sometimes kill you or eat you alive. Now, where is discernment? Where is wisdom? Or as the Beatles, the greatest band ever, put it, dear prudence... Won't you come out to play? Now, I believe now, more than ever, now we need to come to God and his word as an anchor for life because we're living in a time of, of contested sources of meaning and of truth where we struggle to accept any authority over our lives. And in fact, I think this may be one of the, the front lines or the front line in, in determining whether Jesus is really your Lord. So grab a Bible. If you don't have one, uh, we'd be happy to... Hand one to you that you may keep if you'd like. We're going to be turning in our, in our Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And if you're getting that Bible from the back, it's on page 313. Okay, Psalm 19. Turn there with me. This is one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry in all of the Bible. It is incredible. Uh, the author was David, King David, and he uh, wrote this psalm. It's been the inspiration of countless songs and devotionals and pieces of art. And C.S. Lewis, who many of you know, he wrote about this psalm. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, I want to read this entire psalm front to, or beginning to end so that you can see this beautifully crafted poetry here. And then we'll sort of break it down into the three parts that it is. Now, let me look at this text here. And the one thing that I want you to see from Psalm 19 
is that God's word is the most precious thing in your possession precisely because it reveals who God is. It reveals God himself. So let's read Psalm 19. I'm actually going to read from the NIV, and you may have an ESV in your hand, but I think the New International Version captures the poetry here much better. So follow along with me. Psalm 19. This is the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from a honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In, In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Now, I mentioned that we're going to look at this psalm in three parts. And the first, you'll see them up on the screen, the three parts. There's the revelation of God's works, the revelation of God's word, and then a prayerful reflection at the end. This is how that psalm flows. So let's look at the first section here. Let's look at the wisdom of God's works as revealed in what he has made. It is in verses 1 through 6. So here David writes beautifully about the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe, everything that God has made. And the focus here is on the majesty, power, and glory of God that's put on display in his material creation. Okay, just look at that first verse again here. The structure of the sentence, okay, it's sort of lost in English. It puts the phrase, the glory of God, and the works of his hands together, back to back. So there's this symmetry in the sentence structure when you read it in the original language that it was written in. And so the sentence would sound more like this if we said it in English. The heavens declare the glory of God. The works of his hands proclaim the skies. It's sort of like Yoda would say, I suppose. I got one laugh in the first hour too. Now, there is a symmetry and parallelism that's going on here because David is putting the focus on something very specific. The things uh, of the glory of God and the works of his hands are one and the same. David is saying that the vastness of the universe, the, the power and the beauty of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and sort of the regularity and the order of those things are like God's signature. 
And I can just imagine David sitting outside on a clear night in the mountains of southern Israel. Okay, there's no street lights, obviously, no neon signs, no billboards, no uh, airplanes flying overhead, no satellites going by. There's definitely no cell phones to distract him. David just simply looks up. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you, you looked up? Maybe you went to the Sierras and you spent a, a, an evening staying up late and looking at the stars. When was the last time you took your eyes off of your phone or your TV or your computer long enough just to simply gaze at what God has made? The beautiful array of stars and planets in the night sky. I mean, we can see thousands upon thousands of them on a clear night. And I think David made a habit of regularly pausing to take all that in. It was inspiring. And I just love the the wonder and the awe that the universe or things like this inspire. And some of you know I'm, I'm a, sort of a space buff or junkie or addicted to learning about things of space, I guess. I just love it so much. Um, I, I love watching documentaries. Uh, I love everything, astronomy, the moon landings, space flight, everything about cosmology and planetary science. I can be so obsessed, I watch a documentary and I just can't help it. I want to talk to somebody about it. So my wife, you know, she's there. So I talk to her and she's like a little annoyed sometimes. She looks at me sometimes, she goes, you'd make a great astrologist. (laughs) Or a great cosmetologist. Yeah, I got one laugh in the first hour too. I'm really striking out. She says, though, Sarah says, you should put your, like, nerdiness to good use. So here we go. I've got a couple facts to share with you, (laughs) things that I've learned. If you want to grapple with how the glory of God is on display in the material universe, look no further than just our own galaxy. Okay, NASA estimates that there's somewhere between 100 billion and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. We can't see them all, so we don't know, but... 100 to 400 billion stars. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind already, in October of this last year, just a few months ago, NASA scientists updated their estimate of the number of total galaxies in the universe from 200 billion to over 2 trillion. They said we, it's 10 times greater than what we thought it was. 90% of the galaxies that exist haven't even really been observed or, or studied or anything. Because if you want to get a sense of the size of the universe and the number of galaxies, NASA scientists a number of years ago, this is now a while ago, they pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at a super dark spot in the sky, a spot where we said, we don't even know what exists. And this is what they saw. They exposed the Hubble Space Telescope for, I don't know, a few days at at the darkest spot in the sky, and this is what shows up. Countless galaxies. Unbelievable. This is only about a third of the image. It's gigantic. I can't fit it all on the screen. So here's the point. I think this gives us a window into what David is writing about here. If you want to understand what it means to say God is big or God is powerful, then just pause for a moment and think about the number of zeros that would follow the estimated number of stars in the whole universe. There are, there, there are many people who say there are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on the entire earth. And God created each one. He knows the actual number. 
That blows my mind. Now let's look, let's look closely here at what David is, is saying about this, about the heavens and the skies. Okay, look back at those first couple verses. The, the verbs that he uses declare and proclaim and that the heavens declare and the skies proclaim, they, they express an ongoing and a progressive action. So in other words, the heavens and skies keep on declaring and keep on proclaiming. They continue to proclaim God's glory and his mighty works. And you know what? Even if we lose sight of that fact, even if we get lost and troubled in the midst of the mundane or the evils of daily life, the fact is, and David is writing about it, the vastness and the beauty and the majesty of the universe is, is, is never stopping to put the glory of God on display. We just have to look up. Now, just the existence of planets and stars isn't the point, I don't think. I think David goes a little bit farther here. Look at verse 2 and following. He says about these things, Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. He says they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out to all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Okay, a couple things here. First, there is, notice that he's talking about that there is order and regularity in the universe. He says day after day, night after night. These things teach us about God, okay? The order and the regular rhythm of the universe, the, the, the way that things move in regular rhythms teaches us about the order of God. His orderliness, his faithfulness day by day. He's trustworthy and faithful. It's plain to see that in the movements of planets and stars, but not just that. I mean, even the laws of physics. Okay, second thing. Notice how the, the, the universe reflects God's glory without words. It says it doesn't do it with speech or sounds. It's universal. Okay, its meaning is unrestricted by the divisions of language that we have today. There's... It's, it's amazing to see that it transcends human communication. Okay, thirdly, notice that there's no place you can hide from it. You can't hide from the knowledge that's revealed in God's creation. It's there, and you have no way to get away from it. The, the wonder of what God has made is known throughout the earth all the way to the ends of the world. And this is a very important point, okay? There is no place on earth where the glory and wisdom and power of a creator God is not on display. If you think you have an excuse to not acknowledge that there's a God who designed this creation, think again. Because the, the wonder and majesty of the universe is, is a signpost to the existence of God, whether you acknowledge him or not. This is what David is writing. Now, I love how he continues to talk about God's creation here because he gives us one more uh, a thing that he talks about. He talks about the sun. And I love the couple images that he uses here. David knows that we human beings are dependent daily on the sun. We, it's the perfect imagery, actually, to talk about God and to talk about his creation is like him and teaches us about him because we have to depend daily on God as well. The sun is like a, an image of God's providence. But I love the imagery that he talks about here. David tells us that the sun is like a groom on his wedding day. <laughs> okay, I had the privilege of doing a couple weddings over this last year. 
And one of those special moments, at least from where I am on that day, is seeing the, a, a groom come out of like the room where he's getting ready and getting dressed with the biggest smile in the universe, all decked out in a suit or a tuxedo and just glowing. This is the image that David is using. Okay, there is a radiance, a, a, a just pride and joy on that moment that cannot be matched. And David says that the rising sun is like the, the, the bold and radiant groom who comes out of that dressing room with, a, with that huge smile on that day. It's beautiful. Now, he also talks about the sun in that next line of verse 5 as a champion coming out in his strength to run his course. I love this metaphor too. David speaks of the confidence and the power and the athleticism of a runner who emerges in the morning on the, uh, of a morning of a big race with an attitude and, and, a, and this, this vigor that nothing can stop me. I'm going to conquer this. You see, David says that, that the sun is like a, a groom and a championship runner that it rises with radiance and with vigor to give its warmth to the earth. See, it's a reflection of God's glory and his providence. Now, do you realize how powerful the sun actually is? I'm going to nerd out here for another minute or two. Um, if you'll let me. The sun is incredibly powerful. Let me put the sun's energy output in terms that hopefully you can understand. It's, it's mind-blowing. Some of the research I did said that in, in one second, the sun produces 5 times 10 to the 23rd horsepower. Your car has like 200, okay? That's, that's in one second. That blows my mind. Now, how much is that? Now, picture this. If you were to build a bridge of ice from here to the sun, 90 million miles, and it was two miles wide and a mile thick, of ice. The sun can melt that in one second. Excuse me? One second? Okay, to put it another way, the sun produces 400 trillion trillion watts of energy every second. That's as much as the energy in a trillion one megaton bombs. In a second, everyone. Okay, let me do one more. The sun in one second produces enough energy for over 500,000 years of the energy consumption of our entire planet today. In one second. And this is only one average star in the entire universe. Remember how many hundreds of billions Trillions of innumerable stars there may be in, our, in the universe. This, okay, this is important for this reason. It reveals to us something about the nature of God. These mind-blowing numbers. A couple things strike me when I think about the vastness of the universe or the power of something like our sun. First thing is that the universe is a mix of creation and destruction with unfathomable amounts of matter and energy. It's out of control. And I think we love to often ponder God, or we, we think of Jesus as a gentle shepherd with a sheep draped over his shoulders, and he's on a stained glass window. That's totally true. But David's pointing something else out about 
that's true about God. The fact that God created and governs a universe of unimaginable power where where cosmic events such as a supernova unleash almost unquantifiable destructive force and energy. It's crazy. Okay, simply put, there is not enough zeros or powers of ten to describe the power of God. Okay, the second thing that strikes me is the harsh and unforgiving realities of the universe make me amazed that here we are on this planet and the fragile life that I have is able to exist. We are in just the right location in the distance from our sun. We are in, uh, uh, we have the right mix of natural elements and, and raw materials that God has provided for us. We, we, are, we exist with, uh, on this planet that has a magnetic field and an atmosphere that protects us. We're, we're situated, our solar system, in between two of the spiral arms of our galaxy in a safe, quiet, quaint little spot near the edge. We live in, in our solar system in sort of the quiet and quaint countryside of the Milky Way. <laughs> if we weren't, we wouldn't be here. It would be impossible. What amazes me is that everything we've discovered and studied about the location of our planet and our solar system and the ability to sustain life and all of those things that we've learned about the universe, they speak to the wise and benevolent care of a creator who provided a place for his image bearers to live. It's no accident that we are here in this place and that we have a home. God knows what he's doing. Now, I could... Gosh, I could talk about this stuff for hours. So we got to move on because I could do the whole spiel here on everything. Um, let's move on, though, because I want to talk about the next section of this psalm. This whole first part of the psalm, we've been talking about the works of God that put his glory on display in the creation that he's made, how his power and his wisdom and glory are displayed. But the second part of our psalm here talks about God's word. So verses 7 to 9 here, David turns a corner, big time. Verses 7 and following, he talks about the, this incredible song about the revelation of God and what he has said. Just like the works of God's creation in the cosmos, David says that the words of God reveal to us the power and wisdom and glory of God. But there's a key difference here. Don't miss this when we switch to these next few verses. As David reflects on the words of God, he uses language that is much more direct and makes claims that are much more specific. This isn't an accident. Okay, some scholars think that David, uh, or somebody at least, wrote uh, two different songs, that verses 1 through 6 were one song and verses 7 and following were another song, and that whoever compiled the psalms together put those two songs together. Because the wording doesn't match quite right. There seems to be too abrupt of a shift. But I don't think that that's the case. I think that David did this very purposefully to prove a point. It's no accident. You see, verses 1 through 6 talk about God's works. And when they do, they use the name for God, El. Okay, it's just the letters E-L in English. Okay, the name El is the general name for God in Hebrew. 
and as well as other languages and Semitic languages around the area. And in fact, the other gods of the Canaanites, the head god was named El. So here you have the name El being used for the living God of Israel and also the pagan Canaanite God. So I think David was doing something very deliberate in in saying, you think that your God is in control. No, my God, the living God of Israel, has made everything that you see and is more powerful than the cosmos. The benefits of his works in day and night and heat from the sun, he provides for us. But... In verses 7 to 9, he changes the wording. The name that he uses for God in verses 7 and following is the tetragrammaton. It's the, it's the name Yahweh. It's the specific name for Lord that you see in all caps in your English. That is the specific name in Israel for the covenant law-giving God. The one who has established a relationship with his people. Not the general name for God. You see, David changes to a more technical term for the God of Israel, who is uh, his faithful covenant promises to his people he's made. It's difficult to pick up in the English, but David is now emphasizing that, that, listen, the redemptive plan of God can only be known through his revealed word. Because he's made covenant promises with his people. Okay, so when you look at these verses, 7 through 9, we see a list here of six terms in parallel, all talking about the word of God in different ways, along with four benefits that are sort of intertwined in there. So let me just walk through these here. Look at how specific and forceful these words are. He says, starting in verse 7, that the law of the Lord is perfect. He says the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. He says, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commands of the Lord are radiant. And the fear of the Lord is pure. And the decrees of the Lord are firm, solid. Look at the benefits that are in there. Look at the things that it says that the the word of God does. And they're so much greater than the, than, the, than the general and basic things of the sun rising and setting. Look at what he says. He says in, he says in verse 7, God's word refreshing is, refreshes the soul. It has a restorative quality because it gives healing and it describes what God has done in his redemptive acts. You see, forgiveness and the removal of sin and shame is real. God's word says it unleashes the promises of God so it refreshes us and heals us. Okay, look at that next line there in the end of verse 7. It says that God's word is a source of wisdom. It makes wise the simple. In other words, it makes wise all who would humble themselves to receive it. Now look at verse 8. It says that the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. It gives joy to us. So reading and hearing and and internalizing God's word brings a heartfelt joy that comes from an inner peace. It's only achieved, though, by God's grace, as described in these pages. And then lastly, the end of verse 8, it says it gives light to our eyes. You see, what God has said and done specifically in the scriptures is the only true source of light to illuminate truth for us. The only way to an accurate and life-giving understanding of God. 
Now, let me stop here. I think this is where we arrive at a very clear challenge for us in our culture. And I think we have to pause and ask ourselves what things we are hoping in, that will, what things we are hoping will give us refreshment and wisdom and joy and illumination. I want to ask you, what people or what ideologies or what media or what life hack are you trying out to see if it will fulfill you? We could list a, a huge list of things that we, that we try to, to be fulfilled with or to seek refreshment and wisdom and joy and light, but often those things actually make us feel exhaustion and confusion and sadness and darkness, the exact opposite of what God's Word does. And we're bombarded with the latest and greatest solutions to life's problems, and yet we're not fulfilled. Who or what are you supposed to listen to? Don't miss this, friends. I think the central issue here is, has to do with authority. That's a hard thing for us to talk about in our culture. But don't think David was any stranger to competing sources of authority or feeling tempted and tried to not trust God. Okay, he and the Israelites were regularly tempted to pray to the Canaanite gods. The, the god Baal, or Baal, okay, his, he's the storm god. So when there's no rain, you What are you going to do? You're tempted to pray to this storm god. They were were tested constantly by the passing caravans of traders going from Egypt to Damascus and back, going right through their backyard. They were pressed in on every side by Philistine and Ammonite and Amalekite armies. David regularly was faced with the choice to trust in the promises of God or to trust in in other gods, or in military tactics, or economic powers, or whatever it is to save him and his people. Often he just had the promise of God to cling to, with no other hope. See, he was no stranger to being tested and tried, in the wilderness, in the battlefield, on his throne. But David clung to the sole authority and lasting promises of God. See, his authority and source of truth in times of great trouble, as well as the times of great success, was God's word, because he was a man after God's own heart. Now, this touches on something so critical for us, because we have to think about what is our sense of authority, our source of truth? Where does it come from? I think our culture has taught us to listen more closely to the voices of our friends on our Facebook pages more than God, or, or to define the merit of what someone says or claims based on how many retweets it gets. There's a, a writer and a, a social critic, theologian named Oz Guinness, who, who wrote this in a, in a book um, called Renaissance. He also has another one, Impossible People. I'd recommend both of them. He wrote this about what we're living, and you'll see it up on the screen. He says, We are in an age of truly instant information. 
ceaselessly hyperactive social media when the World Wide Web has become a a flood of uninterrupted information and emotion that pounds down on us by the minute with its ceaseless roar? Who can hear themselves think, let alone make sense of it all with genuine reflection and seasoned judgment? It's all too easy to get caught up in the sensational and forget the significant. And those who make this mistake miss the important for the urgent and become attuned to popular approval rather than divine authority. I think we need to check ourselves here. Do you actually seek and trust in the authority of God? Or or do you tend to peruse the internet, sort of licking your finger and sticking it up in the air to see which way the wind is blowing? Do you gain confidence in what you believe or on, on what you think about the issues of our day by the number of likes or comments you get on the post you put on your Facebook page about it? I don't know about you, but I am getting burned out by the flood of information on my phone. I long for some discernment and discretion. Okay, I'm tired of trying to impress people or worried about getting smothered in the comments section of something. Are you tired? Are you finally at the end of your rope? Are you even close? Or maybe I could put it this way. Are you hungry for God's word yet? Or are you still trying to surf on the waves of the ocean of opinions that's out there? I ask you, what authority are you actually listening to? Notice the words that David chose to talk about God's word. He says, it is perfect. It's trustworthy, it's right, it's radiant, it's pure, and it's firm, it's solid. These descriptions carry so much weight and authority to them. Perfect? Really? Trustworthy? Do you actually believe that? Pure? God's word is pure? Really? David says, yes. And you know why? Because the very nature of God and his plan for salvation history is contained within these pages. The the message of grace, of the cross, of redemption, of resurrection life are written in this book. God has chosen to openly and clearly reveal himself in written form. Not so that we can worship this book, but so that we can openly study it and examine it. It's here in front of us. We can engage our intellect and our heart. We can have an anchor to hold on to and a guide and a light when fallible and sinful human beings instead want to make God in their image. And when we embrace God's word in this way, there's something profound that happens. This is where we come to the sort of the conclusion of this psalm, where David comes to kind of land the plane here in Psalm 19. Look at verses 10 to 14. We're going to see a prayerful reflection on the impact of God's word. Look at verse 10. 
Look at what David says. After all that he says about the perfection of God's word and the authority of God, he says, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from a honeycomb. David says that God's word is better than wealth and fine food. Now, you can't get much more of a direct challenge to our culture and the Bay Area than that. Okay, can you even begin to imagine and grasp how strange it would seem to our self-reliant, relativistic, and anti-authoritarian culture to say that laws, commands, and decrees are better than money and gourmet food? Okay, if I was advising David on how to market his poetry to you, to Bay Area people, I would tell him not to write this. It's not going to sell. Nobody wants to hear this. Are you kidding me? I would instead tell him to say something like this. God's love, you know that love that makes you feel really good about yourself? It's a great addition to your life. That's what we want to hear. That's what the Bay Area tells us. But no, David says... The absolute authority of God, his way of living, his promises to save his people are the only reality, the only thing worth living for and listening to. David says, his words are the most precious possession that I have. And friends, my prayer for you this morning is that you would walk out of here clutching your Bible like it's the most precious thing you own more valuable than your money, more valuable than any of the food you can get on Shattuck. Okay? And here's why. In verse 12, David explains why trusting God's word is essential. Look what he says, verse 12. He comes to a point of humility. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. You see, David knows that we are just the blind leading the blind if we trust in each other's wisdom. Especially in our self-help culture. Instead, though, he says we should seek the power and the wisdom and glory of the one who made the billions upon billions of stars. The billions upon billions, the trillions of galaxies. The one who, who, who we should trust in his authority, who, who explains how life should be lived in the way that he made it. That we find the answers for salvation in the pages of scripture that tell the story of what God has done and said. Brothers and sisters, I long for us to be a church that sits under the authority of God's word like David did. He sought the Lord with all of his heart. Okay, recognizing that knowing God requires that we savor the words and deeds of our Lord as written in his word. They are perfect, trustworthy, radiant, pure, and firm. And they alone give refreshment and wisdom and joy and light. So in this new year, soak in the precious words on these pages. Meditate on them. Study them. Share them. Let them shape you. Put down your phone. Please. Get off of 
Facebook or whatever it is, quiet the flood of voices that are vying to be your authority and guide in life. Listen to what God has to say. Now, I've been thinking about this. I've been, uh, I realize that I've tried to model myself after my great-grandmother in this way. My great-grandmother's name was Bella, and she uh, immigrated as a young girl to the United States from Norway. And she, um, when she died 20, almost 30 years ago, they found on this little stand next to her favorite chair a copy of a, her Norwegian Bible, okay, written in the Norwegian language. And if you open that Bible and look at the pages, there are tear stains on the pages of her Bible. She wept over the truths of God's grace. The story of redemption, the, the promises of the gospel, that God's love and, and indeed her love for Jesus brought her to tears in the moments that were most trying and the most wonderful in life. So as we, as we turn to a time of communion, we're going to have our prayer team up front, and if you'd like to receive prayer, maybe there's something that you say, I've been convicted about, that I want to chart a new course for this year. Something that you want to confess and repent of, or something that you've been convicted where you are seeking refreshment and wisdom and joy and light or illumination from things that aren't God in his word. Maybe there's a way forward this year for you. Turn to the the giver of life and chart a new course by the Holy Spirit. I, I would challenge you to consider what source of authority you're actually listening to. And I'll end by reminding you of the the power, that the power and the authority of God that was on display, that is on display in the cosmos and in God's word is the very same power and authority that raised Jesus from the dead. And my prayer for you is the same as what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 to 23. And let me close by praying this prayer over you. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the, glorious, the, the, the riches of the glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen.